Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. Very excited about today's recording. We've got Zach Abrams in studio with us. He's been covering the FTX, or well, I should say SBF, those acronyms are always tripping me up, trial in downtown Manhattan. Sir, thanks so much for coming in. There's a lot to cover in a short period of time. So let's kind of dive in. I think we we need to obviously address the big elephant in the room, um, which is that you kind of bear a slight resemblance to Mr. Bankman Free. Do we have to address the elephant in the room? I, mean- uh, I think that like if you if it takes away the power from the internet to, okay, sure. to meme this or to um you know make sure. make maybe fun of you. Um without commenting on anyone's looks because that's something that we don't want to do on this show. Well, I've neither I've never either had nor lost a billion dollars. So that's one major difference between us. It's a huge difference. But that that's actually been part of the story is is his appearance in the courtroom apparently. This is something that I think, you know, mainstream media have have picked up on the fact that he got a haircut, he's got this new suit. Yeah, his lawyers, I believe, said that he got his suit 40% off at Macy's trying to uh, emphasize the defense's narrative that this isn't some Machiavellian mastermind. He's a math nerd from MIT who's incredibly smart in certain ways when it comes to cryptocurrency arbitrage and just doesn't have the same level of, I guess, emotional intelligence, you would call it, uh, when it comes to dealing with other people, when it comes to his appearance and dressing himself. Though we also know that Part of his messy appearance over the course of running FTX, he was aware that that was how the media was seeing him and he played into that. He Mm. intentionally didn't get haircuts. He didn't dress in suits because that's how people expected him to show up. That's right. It was kind of part of the meme. We can all harken back to the the shoelace um, uh, episode, if you will, back when he testified in front of Congress. Um, Okay, so let's talk about what it's been like inside the courtroom. What is... I mean, this is your first time. I, I, I'm pretty sure it covering a, a trial in this way, um, so pretty exciting. What what surprised you so far about uh, being in the within the belly of the beast? Well, one thing I didn't know going in, um, the first hearing I actually covered was the hearing in which Sam Bankman-Fried was sent back to prison uh, this past summer, and what I learned then and and carried through to this time is that in uh, in federal court, at least. You can have your phone only if you're a reporter for the court. Most of the reporters there from almost 50, over 50 outlets, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, since we're covering the SBF story, we don't have any credentials that the public doesn't have. So while we're in there, we're not allowed to have our phones, any electronic recording devices. We're not allowed to use the Internet. So really, all we can take with us into the courtroom is a notebook, anything we've printed out, although uh, I haven't really seen any other journalists reference that, and just our knowledge of the case. I guess you can't bring a recording device? No, not even a recording device. Um, We can get the transcripts at the end of the day, which helps, but a lot of us want to file stories before then. So um, I think a function of your reporting is how well you know the details of the case. And um, it's interesting to see the different tact that different outlets take, whether some of them cover more of the color of the courtroom, at the block, I've been trying to go really deep on the details of this case because I think that 
there's a convenient narrative that a lot of people are familiar with. But I think if you really dig into the details of the case, it's not so clear that the government's narrative that this was a fraudulent enterprise from the beginning, that Sam Bankman-Fried stole the money and spent it on himself, cut and dry. I'm not so sure that the evidence points to that specifically as the wrongdoing at the heart of the FTX collapse, although obviously there was plenty of wrongdoing by Sam Bankman-Fried and others to go around. Yeah, no, I I, I see what you're you're um, putting down here, which is that kind of the the really strong case that the government has is not necessarily um, the sort of the fraud um, that about which crypto Twitter might pontificate, um, which is that he kind of like had this, you know, piggy bank of client funds, put his hands in it and use it at, at his discretion. But you mentioned something when we were driving over here, which I thought was interesting, which is uh, what Matt Levine sort of opined on, which is um, uh, without being overly simplistic, anything can really be securities fraud if you're if you're if you're lying about something to people uh, that have given you money. And that's I think what you're trying to say is that that that's really the the kind of smoking gun, for lack of a better analogy, that the government's case has versus maybe the the sort of really really sort of um, outlining the way in which Sam stole stole funds is maybe a bit thornier than people right. might think. The defense said something interesting in their opening argument. They said, this is a hindsight case. The government, the media, you know, in general, all of us have looked back. We saw this massive collapse happen and we said, in hindsight, there must have been some wrongdoing committed. There must have been some crime committed that led to this massive collapse. But we know in terms of three hours capital, sometimes you have these big blowups and I know Suju just got in prison, but that was because he wasn't responding to a subpoena. Like, it doesn't seem like there are people calling for criminal charges against these founders for what they did, which was incinerating capital. It's not a crime to be a failure. Uh, and so the defense was saying, because there is this massive failure, the government is trying to look back at the case and say, there must have been a crime here. There must have been wrongdoing here. The defense is saying there wasn't. It was a bunch of people building the plane as they're flying it. That's the metaphor they used. Mm. And unbeknownst to them, they're about to fly into a perfect storm of a crypto market downturn um, and just a variety of, of, of factors that led to the FTX collapse. Again, I don't think the government's narrative is the best narrative to go with. The defense's narrative is also leaving out a lot of details of wrongdoing, obvious lies that Sam Bankman-Fried told that he can't get around. What are some of the... What are some of the lies that are the most glaring? I mean, the government in their case has been able to show glaring lies. And a lot of that um, related to the activities of Alameda's trading accounts on FTX. Mm. And I want to make clear that something we'll talk about later is separate than the trading accounts. But when we're talking about the trading accounts, I'll refer to them with the name info at mm. because info at alamedaresearch.com was like the shorthand for Alameda's trading accounts. Mm. So much of the testimony, the last time we were in court, we heard from FTX Alameda Research co-founder and chief technical officer, Gary Wong. And Gary talked about all of the ways in which Alameda's trading accounts, info at, were given special privileges on the FTX exchange. That's they were right. allowed to borrow unlimited capital, not necessarily pay interest payments on that borrowed capital. Um, they were allowed to remain negative, whereas other accounts would have been automatically liquidated. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried's story is that 
a lot of these special privileges were put in place at a time when Alameda was the central and, and sole market maker of FTX, because if Alameda had gotten liquidated, it could have caused chaos on the exchange. SBF goes on to say that by the time FTX evolved, Alameda only made up around 5% of volume compared to other market makers. So it wasn't like they were, um, it wasn't like the info ad account was the main vehicle by which this fraud happened necessarily. That's SBF's story. But there are certain mischaracterizations like uh, Wong had designed this liquidation engine so that if your position got blown out, you were able to, FTX was able to close your position without doing clawbacks like other exchanges. Just Wang, by the way. They said Wong. Like Really? That's how they pronounced it in court, but huh. I'm not totally... W-A-N-G. Yeah. Weird. Um, but... Uh, one one very clear lie that you can point to is that with this liquidation engine, Sam Bankman-Fried told Matt Levine on a podcast, yeah. Matt Levine, uh, that, we, that they played for in court, that there was never a day in which the losses due to blowouts with this liquidation engine exceeded FTX's revenue. Gary testified that that wasn't true on regular days, and it also wasn't true in one specific instance where a trader was able to manipulate the price of a currency called MobileCoin and cause like mm -hmm. a several hundred million dollar loss to FTX. Um, and at Sam's direction, Alameda just absorbed that loss. Um, it wasn't widely known. It wasn't disclosed to investors. Alameda just decided to plug the hole itself. Um, another thing a lot of people pointed to this week was that Again, with regards to these blowouts, there was an insurance fund that was That's advertised right, yeah. on the FTX website that advertised a value in US dollars and FTT tokens. Unfortunately, that FTT token value was made up by a random number generator. It was completely fake, mm -hmm. according to Gary's testimony. It was just a fake number. Um, obviously, when SBF tweeted, assets are fine, FTX is fine, assets were not fine, and FTX was not fine. And so and, what is, is the defense saying that like a lot of this happened without Sam's knowledge? The defense hasn't, well, so far in the case, the prosecution has been able to call their witnesses. So the government story has been the narrative that we're playing out. The defense has only been able to respond through cross examination, mm -hmm. which hasn't been going very well for them. Mm. Uh, they've had trouble asking the questions. The government has objected to a lot of them. The judge is clearly getting, you know, he's losing his patience with a lot of the repetitive questioning. But with this Do long weekend. you have an weekend, example maybe with Wang? Yeah, like there was, uh, there was about 10 minutes left to fill at the end of the day. And they started asking Wang questions about like, oh, so you met Sam at MIT. And, you know, when did you get into coding? And the judge was like, if you're just trying to fill the last 10 minutes, let's just end early. Um, yeah. That being said, they had this whole long weekend to prepare cross-examination for him. And uh, that's what we're expecting to see tomorrow when the trial resumes, along with potentially calling Caroline Ellison, who's the witness I am most interested in hearing from. A lot of us are most interested in hearing from. What are some of the questions you anticipate the government to ask of uh, Miss Ellison? Well, here's the thing. So I want to talk about what I think is the heart of the FTX case, which a lot of people aren't aware of. But there's this account, before I talked about InfoAt, which was the Alameda Research trading accounts on FTX, those were visible. I've talked to some people in the courthouse have shown up, not because they're journalists, but because they're interested in tech mm. or they have a background in crypto. Um, 
one one person I spoke with said like everybody knew there was some relationship between FTX Alameda and we knew it was probably improper in some ways. But, you know, we knew we were trading against Alameda. We knew they were the counterparty. However, there's this other liability called Fiat at. And I want to explain it because I think it's really important to the case. Basically, Alameda Research starts in 2017. Sam Bankman-Fried learns through arbitrage, through other means, that he can basically, by skirting some of the rules, make money appear out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And I think he learns this core lesson early on that there is always going to be more money coming in, Mm -hmm. or if they lose money, they're always going to find it. There's this anecdote in the Michael Lewis book about them losing millions of dollars worth of Ripple, and his entire team quits. They're like, there's millions of dollars missing. You keep saying it's going to come, but you're not even trying to look for it. They left. But Sam was right. He found the money. The money was there. And I think over time, this kind of narrative really bakes into his psyche. So then... Mm. 2019, they decide to start FTX. I've always wondered, like, did they think Alameda was going to get kicked off of all the other exchanges? Like, did they, were they trying to design a playing field perfect for the player Mm. that they had? Who knows? But they start FTX and they make this core mistake or they, they make this core decision, which is that early on FTX is having trouble securing its own bank accounts. As Sam Bankman-Fried has said, it's very difficult to get banks to work with crypto companies. The reason he named his company Alameda Research, as we also heard in court, is because banks love working with research institutes. Uh, it would be a mistake to name your company, you know, we trade cryptocurrency, arbitrage, futures, whatever, as he said. So Alameda begins accepting deposits meant for FTX. And the way this works is that if I want to deposit money into my FTX account, I send $100 to Alameda Research's bank account, and an automated system keeps track of that and then credits my account on FTX. Essentially, that means Alameda Research now owes FTX $100 because it's credited to my account on FTX, but the money is still in the Alameda bank account. The internal system, which was designed by Adam Yadidia, who is one of the witnesses we heard testified, the internal system to keep track of that liability was something called fiat at. So we have info at before, now we have this fiat at liability. And so this number in fiat at is designed to go negative because it's designed to track the amount of money Alameda owes FTX. And over time, it grows to $8 billion. That might sound familiar, might sound like a familiar figure if you've been following this case. And the thing is, according to Bankman Freed, uh, this Fiat at number was visible in the internal database, which is not something he has access to because he's always said he's not a coder. Um, And over time, it seems like everybody just forgets about this liability because Alameda is continuing to print money out of thin air. And again, I think the main mistake SPF made was thinking that there was always going to be money coming in. Um, So they have this hidden liability. And if you have read any of Sam's writings in the breakdown of the crash. He often talks about like a hidden poorly labeled account or like shoddy accounting was covering up risk. This is what he's referring to, this $8 billion fiat at whole. Now, in my opinion, this fiat at liability is the thing that turns this from a story about Alameda Research's collapse, the same as Three Arrows Capital, into the story of FTX's collapse. 
because according to SBF, it was only a couple of weeks before the collapse that he found about found out about this liability and they just didn't have enough time to defuse the bomb before the liquidity crisis, before the CZ tweets, before how, how, how is, the crash that took is, it down. How is sort of this um, improper accounting or let's call it that, how is this connected to the the sort of um, the back door that's often referred to in in the press, this ability for FTX to, or rather Alameda, to borrow, in essence, an unlimited amount of money from FTX with, with sort of the collateral that they have on the platform. Yeah, that's a really good question because this is where I think people are getting confused because they're confusing this info ad account with the fiat ad account. So it's true that info at one of the abilities that uh, Gary coded into it. And is was that, that the back door? Well, not necessarily. So info at did have these capabilities. It had a $65 billion line of credit, which people love pointing out that number. But again, uh, Sam claims, or Sam will claim, I assume, uh, that all of these special privileges were just ensuring that Alameda Research's account could be an effective market maker on the platform. This was all regarding to the info at. Now, what I think the government is trying to show is that the fiat ad account was SBF's personal slush fund. So what I think is really critical to this case is exactly what he knew about it and when and what the government can show beyond a shadow of a doubt he knew about it and when. And that's why Carolyn Ellison's testimony is going to be incredibly central. And there's another element to this that I find really interesting, which I think a lot of people are getting tripped up with as well. Uh, there was a bug in Fiat at, and a lot of reports on this haven't been, haven't known what to make of this bug, but here's why the bug is important. So Adam Yadidia testified that because of a bug in Fiat at, at certain points, it appeared that the liability was larger than it actually is. Now you might be wondering like, Okay, what's the danger of a danger appearing larger than it actually is? We're usually more worried about things appearing less dangerous than they are. Yeah. But here's why it's important. Kind of reminds me of margin call. Right. If uh, at a certain point, the apparent liability in Fiat at seemed to hit a value of $16 billion, that means that Alameda appeared to owe FTX $16 billion. Here's my question. Did anybody especially Alameda Research CEO at the time, Caroline Ellison, see that figure. And what did she say? Who did she tell about it? Did it get back to Bankman Freed? Because again, there's this weird relationship where SBF at the time says, I wasn't running Alameda. I wasn't Alameda's CEO, but he was the 90% owner. And a lot of the reporting that we've heard is that he still was de facto running Alameda Research. So mm -hmm. in his defense is, I told Caroline to hedge with all my capital and she didn't. Other people are saying that he was still the de facto leader of Alameda. I'm not entirely sure who to believe at this stage of the trial. And that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about from Caroline and from others. Have we gotten into um, any of, I think this is the separate case. A lot of the um, government um, bribery issues or campaign finance, is that tied at all into this case or is that, is that separate specifically maybe uh, SBF and Co's backing of, of different political candidates? Um, is that is that a part of this case or is that separate? Yeah. So uh, 
The there, Chinese bi bribery as the well. The Chinese bribery specifically. So another thing about this case that uh, many people may not know is that the indictment, I believe it was 14 or 15 counts, it was severed so that they're trying him on seven counts in this trial. It was originally eight. They knocked it down to seven, I believe. But in March, there's a separate trial. So at that trial, there's going to be um, the Foreign Corrupt Practices mm. Act, which is like the alleged Chinese bribery. The campaign finance was actually dropped from this case, oh, okay. um, but it's unclear whether that'll be charged in March to me. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's, that's likely um, not, not tied into, into this. What do you think Caroline's going to argue and to what extent will that help the government's case against Sam? Well, Carolyn's going to say something similar to what Gary said, which is that I committed crimes while I was in my position at FTX and I committed my crimes with that guy over there, Sam Bankman Freed. Mm -hmm. That's what Gary said, because again, the two of them, along with Nishad Singh, have already pled guilty and are cooperating with the government. Mm -hmm. One thing I learned, again, this is the first case I'm covering, uh, you know, aside from watching Law and Order on TV. Ha! And one thing I learned is that uh, they make it very clear, even the government, they ask the witnesses, you know, did you talk to the government? They say, yes. What did the government tell you? They said, tell the truth. But they make it very clear to the jury. I'm testifying under a cooperation agreement. I hope Gary said explicitly, I hope to avoid prison time. Ideally, that's what I want out of this. Mm -hmm. But that the government told him to tell the truth. Um, so I think she'll say that, although she also has to give the disclaimer that She's obviously saying this, hoping to get something out of it, hoping to get a reduced sentence. Mm. And I wonder, I think part of Sam Bankman-Fried's maybe annoyance with this trial is that it does feel very fast. It does feel like the government was able to secure its witnesses, come up with charges, move on to a trial. It hasn't even been a year since the collapse yet. Um, and it's is it possible that the government has made some of the same mistakes I see other reporters on this case making in conflating some of the details and maybe not getting the whole story, but deciding that a crime had to have occurred, it's certainly possible. And that's why I'm not entirely sure that the government's case against SBF is as strong as many people would like it to be, or many people assume that it has to be given all that we've heard about this guy who must have stolen the money. Yeah. I think we talked about this on the, on the last, on the episode we, we most recently did with saying Tackett, which it, it's not the same exact point that you're making, but we unpacked the degree to which nuance may not exist in, in various forms across across this trial, right? So uh, someone makes a contention um, and then people get very upset because it doesn't maybe fit exactly into um, their 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 box or their or their way of thinking about something. Like when Michael Lewis said this was a business that was successful, he probably went too far in, in, in the way he described it. Whereas people are saying, uh, other people are going too far as well, saying this was a complete, uh, for Gazi for Gazi. Right. Um, whereas the truth is somewhere in the middle, which is yes, FTX had a litany of operational issues and was probably bootstrapped by Alameda, Alameda's liquidity, 
Alameda was doing shady stuff. So by transitive property, there's, there's a bit of shadiness there. Um, but at the same time, like they, there were trading people trading and those people paid fees to trade. And so that was profitable. Now the second part of his contention, which is that had CZ not cast dispersions, and this is what we talked about with Zane, they'd be fine. I mean, that's like utterly absurd. I, I, I mean, and you know, maybe we disagree on this point. I think you might contend that had CZ, you CZ saw this opportunity to kind of kick, uh, kick the the operation into the ground because the you know got it, it was a perfect opportunity. I mean, at the end of the day, I think I don't think to agree with Zane that you can blame CZ for any of this. Um, it would have come crumbling down at some point, regardless of of of, of sort of him um, casting aspersions, as Michael Lewis put it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, I'm going to look right into the camera. I'm not I'm absolutely my intention is not to defend Sam Bankman Freed here and say that he never did anything wrong. However, I think that a very simplistic understanding of the case being there is this evil guy who is evil. It's a good thing we're putting him behind bars. Let's all move on. I think that misses a lot of lessons we can learn from the wrongdoing that was done. That was legal. In addition, I think there were a lot of bad decisions that were made that were legal. I think that there were other people that were maybe not responsible, but had some hand in in what happened. Mm. And there are certain levels of things. And, and I kind of imagine it as... Sam wanted to build this this tower to the heavens that was broadcasting this or really just showing what an effective altruist billionaire could do. He could make all of this money. He could give it away. And I think at a certain point, he got so focused on building the tower higher and higher that he didn't notice the structural problems at the foundation. And I kind of categorized these in a few different ways. There were cracks, which were bad decisions, like appointing... Carolyn Ellison to run Alameda Research, at which point she lost maybe 75, maybe $100 billion. It's a terrible decision. She wasn't cut out for it, as she admits in her own diaries. They had romantic entanglements. Sam was a terrible manager. This was a terrible management decision. It wasn't illegal, but it was terrible, right? Um, getting and distracted. there is some stuff that was illegal that was also terrible. Right. There was. Um, but there was... I still think like the over-reliance on the balance sheet of FTT and Serum, like people didn't make as much of a stink at the time because it was par for the course for crypto, but maybe it shouldn't have been par no, for the course I for totally, crypto. No, I totally agree. And something that I've whacked poetic about, which is just how you get that runway uh, collateral risk. Um, and I think as uh, it's something that nobody really pays attention about um, coming out of this case, but as an industry specifically as a capital markets, we need to think about what type of collateral is proper in, in sort of a lot of these trade um, uh, agreements and, 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 and the extent to which there's collateral risk as well as counterparty risk that needs to be paid attention to. That's a, you're right. It's not, it's not illegal to uh, take FTT as collateral, but moving forward um, we should reconsider the types of assets um, especially if it's literally an asset that is tied to the success of the counterparty from whom you're borrowing. Um, okay. So, uh, closing thoughts, what, what, what should we expect, um, uh, next? What are you excited about that we haven't maybe necessarily covered? It's a good question. 
Um, and there's so much to this case, but I really think that this upcoming week might be the most critical week in the trial because we're going to hear from Caroline. We might hear from Nishad. And I think everything around Fiat at who knew about it and when is going to be key because, again, there were cracks in the foundation. If, if Sam knew about Fiat at, that is key to the government's case against him? It's key to the government's case against him. Uh, because he claims he didn't know about it until shortly before the collapse. And even then, if he was tweeting out assets are fine when he knew still, about it, that doesn't look great. Still not great. What about um what about this idea of him? Is the so I want to get something clear about the government before we wrap up. Sure. Are they a hundred percent on the bandwagon, or not the bandwagon per se, but is there thesis 100% that Sam was committing fraud from the beginning of, of FTX? They describe it all as a, a fraudulent enterprise, basically that he set out. I mean, I was just bringing this up on the transcript. I'm not going to be able to find it. But um, basically that he set out to personally enrich himself. And that's another thing. I mean, hmm. in your last conversation with Zane, you mentioned like the anecdotes in the Michael Lewis book that he was floating, paying $5 billion to mm-hmm. Trump not to run just a few months before the collapse. Does that really seem like somebody who's desperately trying to avoid a collapse or some of the arguments around like, oh, he was buying this lavish real estate in the Bahamas? Personally, if you wanted me to move away from my apartment, my friends, my family, my connections and work for you in the Bahamas, you better be putting me up in a nice apartment and it was a shared apartment they took pains to um establish during cross-examination mm. it was dorm style living it wasn't like he was and he drove a toyota corolla there's there was a funny moment where the uh uh again the judge has been losing his patience with the defense attorneys at one point the defense attorney uh asked i think it was adam yadidia if he could recognize a if he if he knew what kind of car sam drove and he said no. And he said, well, do you know what a Toyota Corolla is? And the judge said, come on, there's no one in this room who's never seen a Toyota Corolla. Let's get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's he's losing his patience, I think. Yeah. But I do the think this, there's, there's a kind of disconnect between we know what people who get into crypto just to steal people's money or just to collect money mm-hmm. for a project, you know, not to point fingers in a way that would be libelous, but there's a documentary recently about Richard Hart who bought the world's largest diamond. Mm -hmm. You could argue that Sam was just trying to amass more capital to make the political connections to, I don't know, like I don't understand what the end game is. His actions right before the collapse don't make sense if you go in with a government's narrative. They do make more sense if, if you take him as somebody who wasn't aware that he had much less money than he thought he did because of the fiat at liability or that there was this huge gaping bomb that was just waiting to go off. Um, and they also make sense as somebody suffering from this hubris that just thought he could always make money out of thin air. And he didn't realize that well, the it money gets, itself it, was getting thinner and thinner. More it, of it, it was Sam coins. More it puts of it into was, question like what enriching oneself means. And maybe it wasn't exactly within the scope of what we typically see with him maybe going to Hermes or getting the Hope Diamond. But there was an enriching in a, in a, in a sense. And he was certainly, I mean, certainly his parents were trying to enrich themselves being paid. What was it? You know, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and wanting more and not being content with what they had, buying his brother the $5 million condo in DC. I mean, it's, yeah, he didn't have nice clothes, but I mean, that's enriching oneself in, in one respect. There was no, I mean, if you're an effective altruist, I got to call bullshit on, on that. What does your brother need a $4 million condo for in DC? And I guess you could respond, well, then you can host people and then you get connected with the right people who can then donate. The money never went anywhere. It never did any good. And so, I mean, that's where I think their case is the weakest. I mean, if they had actually done some good, I mean, just gotten like a malaria net or something, you can make the case that this guy had good intentions. But at the end of the day, when you look at what Sam Bankman-Fried has done, he has added zero good to the world. And I think that hurts his case. Sure. And that's my issue with EA is that if you get into effective altruism, which I've you know explored in my own reporting, it starts out very simple. It starts out with why donate to something when you can save a life by donating the same amount to a place that really needs yeah, it by buying a malarial we're, net. What we're right? talking about. Yeah. But eventually you start you to be able to use it. the language to argue for things you want. And I think... The, the way EA kind of breaks down for me personally is when you have enough scale to influence politics. And I think that's what Sam's calculation was. He said, I could buy malarial bed nets, but in the end, that doesn't fix the issue. What I really want to do is fix the political system. But then I need more capital to do that. So I might as well. And I don't mean fix uh, as in manipulate. I just mean mm -hmm. like repair. Yeah. Uh, but then you start realizing, oh, if I had more money, I could do that better. And if crypto regulations treated my company better, then I would have more money. And so now you're arguing for crypto regulations in an EA way. That to me, like, I can understand how you got there, but you've lost me because you're not helping people. Yeah. I mean, you just said, again, back to nuance. Like, it should but be. But he did give tens of millions of dollars to political candidates in a way that's not charitable giving in a way you or I would do it. Yeah. But it was in his conception, a conception yeah. I don't agree with. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do this again. Um, maybe we can make this a regular thing as the case unfolds. But I'd appreciate you coming down uh, to the studio and appreciate you guys for tuning in. Let us know what you think. Have a great day. Bye.